This is Not Your Grandma's Bible Study, making critical biblical scholarship accessible and fun. Hi, welcome to Not Your Grandma's Bible Study. I'm Jill and I'm Not Your Grandma. I hope you're all healthy and happy out there. It is currently freezing in Fort Worth. Forgive me if I'm chattering while I record. Today I'm going to share with you some of my own research and insight into Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Much of what I'm presenting here is part of my book manuscript that will soon be published by Fortress Press, hopefully by the end of this year. This is the story of the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus requesting healing for her daughter. So let me read the passage for you real quick. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, if you didn't pick up on some of the problematic features of this story, you either weren't listening, or you've been given a sweet set of theological gymnastics equipment to help you get around it. So for this episode, I'm going to examine the context of the familial relationship between the mother and daughter in this passage by considering the impact of the impairment of the daughter on the family, specifically on her mother, who I will call Eusta. The pseudo-Clementine epistles name the Canaanite woman Eusta, and with Elaine Wainwright, I think she deserves a name. I will explore the possible circumstances of the unnamed demon-possessed daughter and what the possession may have looked like. I think that Eustace's appearance before Jesus requesting the healing of her daughter may be reflective of a complex home situation in which the daughter's impairment is a significant source of stress for her family. Using a scholarly reconstruction of ancient life, or for shorthand, an informed imagination, I suggest two scenarios that reveal possible stress-filled family dynamics impacting Eusta and her daughter, one in which the daughter is an infant and another in which she is an adult. This passage is particularly interesting to me for two reasons. First, few interpreters spend time considering the possible circumstances of this family unit, what the daughter's impairment and healing may mean for the alleviation or escalation of those stressors, and how Jesus' response to the request for healing contribute to the family's stress. Secondly, this passage is unique in the gospel because it contains both a female supplicant and a female impaired character. Therefore, it provides opportunity to explore possible stressful circumstances related to gender and varying ages within the family in the ancient world. William R. Avison is a sociologist who has explored the ways in which families specifically are affected by mental health problems of an individual member. Avison argues, quote, studies of caregiving and family burden provide interesting lessons for sociologists in understanding how the mental illness of a family member generates an array of chronic stressors that sometimes erodes the psychological well-being of parents, spouses, or adult children who provide care, end quote. 
and that mental illness, though well-documented to be the result of social stressors, itself serves as a stressor within a family unit. In addition to the chronic strain caused by ongoing symptoms or the anxiety of the threat of symptoms, those living with a mentally ill family member often experience discrete stressors that are the direct result of the mental illness, such as encounters with law enforcement, institutionalization, hospitalization, and job loss. Avison's research is focused primarily on mental health, as most social stress theory is, but the stressors described can be true of families with a chronically physically ill family member. Additionally, the studies informing Avison and Perlin's individual research are based on modern families and on modern understandings of mental illness and health. So I'm going to exercise caution in utilizing insights from their research, although I do believe that their work is really useful for thinking about some of these aspects of family life in the ancient world. In what follows, I'll suggest two possible scenarios for understanding the relationship between Eusta and her impaired daughter and the circumstances of stress in which they live. In the first scenario, I'll explore the possibility that the daughter is an infant and that her symptomatology has given rise to the possibility of exposure. In the second scenario, I will consider the possibility that the daughter is an adult woman with her own child to care for. I'll explore how the daughter's impairment introduces stress into the lives of her caregiver, which would be Eusta in scenario one, or her dependents, which would be her own child and her aging mother in scenario two. There are a few items to note before exploring my proposed scenarios though. First, what does calling the woman a Canaanite indicate about her characterization? This is a clear change from the Markan version where she is described as Syrophoenician. So what does the moniker Canaanite connote? The Canaanites were the ancient enemies of the Israelites. They were the indigenous folk living in the land God promised to Israel and the Israelites were given divine sanction to systematically annihilate them. The term recalls an extended tradition of animosity between the Israelites and Canaanites that includes primeval patriarchal narratives, as well as the exodus, wilderness wandering, and conquest and genocide narratives. The term Canaanite is a label given to Eusta by the author and highlights the upcoming conflict between her and Jesus. The naming of Eusta as Canaanite foreshadows how Jesus will treat Eusta by positioning her as an enemy of Israel, and therefore an enemy of Jesus. This might, for some readers, justify Jesus calling her a dog. Musa Dube, a post-colonial biblical scholar, argues that for the text to name Eusta, quote, as a Canaanite, is to mark her as one who must be invaded, conquered, annihilated, or if she is to survive, then she must parrot the superiority of her subjugators and betray her own people and land. Basically, she must survive only as a colonized mind, a subjugated and domesticated subject. End quote. The treatment she receives by Jesus because she is marked as enemy and other contributes substantially to her social stress, and I'll discuss that a little bit more later. The second issue to address is that there is no description of the symptomatology that the daughter is exhibiting. Eusta only says that her daughter is severely demon-possessed. An array of symptoms and behaviors could qualify as resulting from demon possession in the ancient world. In Matthew, the symptoms that may indicate demon possession include ferocity, loss of speech, strange diets, loss of sight, the ability to exercise demons, and falling into fire or water, which might indicate an element of self-harm. 
The reader then is left to fill in the gaps of what symptoms the daughter is presenting. Is she unable to communicate? Is she exhibiting ferocity like the gathering demoniacs? Is she harming herself in some capacity? Or are there other symptoms that one could imagine she exhibits that are not described elsewhere in Matthew? The adverb kakos may provide some direction for imagining her symptoms. This word is used five other times in Matthew, either as a modifier indicating enhanced severity, like in 1715 or in 2141, or as a modifier describing those brought to Jesus for healing, where it is commonly simply translated as the sick, which would be in 816, 912, and 1435. One passage of note is 816, where it is in a list that seems to indicate demon possession and sickness are two different categories. Perhaps the use of this word not only highlights the severity of the daughter's condition, but also indicates a general illness that is blamed on a demon. Maybe the daughter is extremely ill and the mother blames a demon for the trouble. And the third preliminary item is a consideration of the question of Eustace's marital status. While most females in the empire could expect to be married by their mid to late teens, males typically did not marry until they were around 30. This means that the age gap between a father and a child averaged at 40 years. Sharon Bettsworth highlights that, quote, children were more likely to have a surviving mother than father since men were often 10 years or so older than their wives, end quote. Garnsey and Soller note that more than half of children would have lost their father by the time they reached their mid to late teens. While many men would have been widowed due to the dangers associated with childbirth, many women would also have been widowed due to the natural aging of their significantly older husbands or their military activity. Therefore, if one imagines Eusta's daughter as being an adult, then it is possible that her father has died and Eusta is a widow. There are other reasons besides death that might explain the absence of Eusta's husband in the scene. Perhaps he was away on business or at war, it is also possible that Eusta has remarried and her current husband is not interested in providing care for his stepdaughter. In the scenarios that follow, I will presume in one scene that Eusta is married and in the other scene that she is not. Finally, I'm not going to attempt to understand why Jesus calls Eusta a dog. Jesus calls her a dog because the male Jesus can call her a dog, and his abuse of her is rhetorically justified by the moniker Canaanite. I think that most attempts to understand why are really attempts to excuse the behavior of this quite unpalatable presentation of Jesus. One more thing before I present my two possible scenarios for understanding the daughter and her situation. I may need to defend myself. Anytime we read biblical texts, we are filling in gaps about characters and stories. We bring our own experience to the table. How many times have you been in a Bible study and been asked, what does this passage say to you? How does this passage speak to your current circumstances? So I'm doing something similar, except instead of bringing my experience, I'm constructing a possible ancient experience to fill in the gaps. So let's get to the scenarios. In the first scenario, I propose that Eusta is a married woman from a non-elite class whose husband has decided to expose their daughter because her possession symptomatology, in his view, has made raising the daughter unjustifiable, a decision with which Eusta disagrees. I imagine that the manifestation of the newborn daughter's possession symptomatology was a congenital defect or an illness, perhaps epilepsy, that was the critical factor in the father's decision to expose her. 
Under these circumstances, Eustace's desperation for her daughter's healing may be the difference between life and death, or freedom and servitude for her daughter. At this juncture, the stressors present would more readily affect Eustace. Many scholars have noted a tension in the sources regarding children. Sharon Bettsworth says, quote, On one hand, there is an understanding of the children in the ancient world as one who was not valued, who was in a sense a nobody. On the other hand, there are primary source inscriptions, funerary monuments, poems, letters, and more that demonstrate that children were valued members of the family, end quote. The story of Eusta and her recently born daughter reflects in some ways both of these views of children. Jesus dismisses Eusta and her request, thereby indicating that the daughter is not inherently worthy of his attention or of healing, while at the same time Eusta pleads desperately on behalf of her daughter to secure her well-being. The tension of the daughter's worthiness, then, is resolved in this scene through Eusta's persistence and unwavering defense of her daughter's value. In the ancient world, the pater familias had the power of life and death over his children, and he made the decision to expose an infant or not. While some have taken this power to mean the pater familias held the unrestricted power to kill any member of his household at any time, W.V. Harris notes, quote, nothing at all suggests that this right was applied to children beyond their first infancy, except in isolated cases, end quote. In any event, it is clear that exposure of unwanted or unsupportable infants was a common practice, that the decision-making power belonged to the father, and that boys were preferable to girls, even if only ideologically. Infanticide and exposure were practiced both in Greek and Roman communities for a variety of reasons. Illegitimacy, inheritance issues specific to the elite, to choose the sex of the children to be raised, poverty, or to rid the family of a child with a birth defect or abnormality. It is difficult to know the rates at which children were exposed in the empire. The practice seems widespread enough to be noticed, commented upon, legislated against, and found morally repugnant in some circles, but not so widespread as to cause any sort of instability in the population. The most common reason for exposing a child, it appears, was poverty. Ray Lawrence argues, quote, exposing a child was thought of as the best way of saving an infant from a life of impoverishment or disability, end quote. And Harris says, quote, no economic historian of antiquity would doubt that many children were born into subsistence conditions in which simply feeding another child would mean taking food from members of the family who were already hungry. And in an agrarian society, a bad harvest rapidly puts these choices into stark terms, end quote. Several documents indicate that poverty was a reasonable cause for a family to abandon their child. Alien writes that a Theban law existed requiring families to raise their children unless they were extremely poor, in which case they were to turn the child over to the magistrates to be sold into slavery. Pliny's panegyric shows that economic need was causing some parents to limit their family size. Nerva and Trajan founded and extended the Alimenta in Italy in an attempt to address the situation by providing food for families. The evidence indicates that poverty was a primary consideration for limiting family size for many in the empire. Another reason to expose children was if the child was born with a disability or deformity. Seneca infamously suggested that it was a mercy to destroy, quote, unnatural progeny and drown newborns who were, quote, weakly and abnormal. Seneca the Elder writes, quote, Many fathers are in the habit of exposing offspring who are no good, 
Some, right from birth, are damaged in some part of their bodies, weak and hopeless. Their parents throw them out rather than expose them. End quote. Serenus provides a highly detailed list of qualifications for exposure. In Gynecology 2.10, the only children worth rearing have a mother whose pregnancy was healthy, who were not premature, who cry vigorously at birth, who are sound in their limbs, whose senses work, whose orifices are unobstructed, and whose movements are not sluggish or weak. If his advice were followed with any regularity, this would certainly result in the exposure or infanticide of numerous newborns. Both Senecas are vague regarding what specifically constitutes weak, abnormal, or damaged children. Serenus is no more specific in what constitutes weakness or sluggishness in a newborn. Harris argues, quote, it is difficult to imagine, for instance, that victims of congenital blindness were often allowed to survive, but that it is an overstatement to claim deformed infants were generally exposed, end quote. Overall, Harris holds that some infants with deformities or disabilities may have been, quote, promptly eliminated by midwives, some exposed, and some raised by their parents. Taking these causes for exposure into consideration, I posit a scenario in which Eustace's daughter was at risk for exposure because she was born with a congenital defect or an illness, perhaps epilepsy, that Eustace attributed to demon possession. The Testament of Solomon reflects the belief that demons can attack newborns and that they cause a litany of impairments. For example, a demon claims in 12.2, in the wombs of women, I blind children. I also turn their ears around backward and make them dumb and deaf. Another, named Abizuth, in 13.4, says, My work is limited to killing newborn infants, injuring eyes, condemning mouths, destroying minds, and making bodies feel pain. The demon Rex, Aloth, claims to produce croup in infants in 18.25. In the New Testament Gospels, demon possession is linked to a variety of physical ailments. Blindness, muteness, ferocity, self-harm, seizures and convulsions, fevers. In the ancient world, a litany of afflictions, it seems, were attributed to demon possession. A daughter born into poverty with an impairment such as congenital blindness, muteness, seizures, or fever would be a prime candidate for exposure. It is possible to imagine a woman like Eusta faced with the stressful reality of an impaired daughter and a husband who has decided to expose the daughter because it was fiscally irresponsible to raise such a child. It is important to note that exposure was not regarded as tantamount to infanticide, even if it can be assumed that the majority of exposed infants died. A key difference was that exposure was often done in hopes that the child would be taken in by another and raised. Exposed children were often left in conventional places where they were likely to be found, in temples, on well-traveled intersections, outside of villages or towns, etc. Once exposed, though, a number of possible fates awaited the child. Some feared that exposed children would be killed by wild animals or the elements. Seneca the Elder writes, quote, The dangers to be feared by luckless infants have been wild beasts, snakes, the freezing cold that threatens tender limbs, and lack of food, end quote. Other exposed infants who did not survive, especially those with certain impairments, may have died regardless of whether or not they were exposed. Still, other infants were exposed in places they were unlikely to be found to ensure that they did not survive. There is some evidence that the occasional exposed newborn became a changeling, though, as Harris notes, quote, the substitutions were only common on the stage, end quote. Perhaps some were adopted, though there were means for formal adoption available to a childless couple. 
Though most exposed children probably did not survive, of those who did, the most likely fate was enslavement. The opening line of The Shepherd of Hermas takes for granted that a child raised by another could be sold into slavery. Quote, the one who raised me sold me to a certain woman named Rhoda in Rome. Pliny's correspondence to Trajan presumes that a number of threptoi have become a cause of great concern for his district. The threptoi were children who were exposed, raised by another, and sold into slavery. Pliny seeks Trajan's official guidance on how to handle threptoi who are seeking emancipation. The undated Theban law recorded in Aelian's historical miscellany says that unwanted children of poor folk would be surrendered to the magistrates and sold into slavery. The Christian apologist Justin argues that the exposure of children results in their being raised to be sex workers, a common circumstance for the enslaved. Justin's concern is that he believes that parents who expose their children cause their children to be polluted by their participation in sex work, and that men who visit sex workers may end up in incestuous relations with their own kin. Clement of Alexandria shares a similar concern that men who visit sex workers will unknowingly have sexual relationships with their own children. Though these authors' concerns are with improper sexual relationships among kin, they reflect the common conception that many exposed children were enslaved since most sex workers were enslaved people. Assuming that Eustace's daughter is a newborn infant who has manifested some sort of symptomatology that is attributed to demon possession, such as a congenital defect or seizures, Eustace's husband may have chosen to expose rather than raise the daughter. If the family was poor, then raising a daughter with a physical impairment may not be fiscally plausible. The exposure of infants because of physical deformity or inadequacy or economic strain was common, but this does not mean that it was not a stressful decision for the parents to make. Harris observes that, quote, the anguish of the parents is not in any case to be underestimated, and what was commonplace to a social observer could be a crisis to individuals, end quote. Jerry Toner notes, quote, husbands deciding to expose infants cannot have been a psychological benefit, end quote. In this scenario, the stress-laden decision to expose Eustace's daughter is the difference between life and death, or freedom and servitude. It seems likely that real women, faced with the possibility of exposure, could have been vocal in their desire to keep their children, even if they had no actual power to enact their desires. Eustace's say in the decision to expose her daughter would depend very much on how accepting her husband was of her opinions and concerns. That Eusta would approach Jesus to heal her daughter suggests that her desire to raise her daughter in spite of her impairment did not change her husband's mind. In this scenario, the daughter's possession symptoms are the primary reason for exposure. Thus, if Eusta can find a healer for her daughter, her husband may be willing to raise the daughter. Eusta's position in this scenario is stressful indeed. In terms of stress related to role occupancy, delineated by Avison and Perlin, Eusta is faced with several acute and chronic stressors if her daughter is at risk of exposure. First, as a wife, she would be expected to be subordinate and submissive. As Jerry Toner explains, quote, the wife was subject to the whims of her husband. Wives were pressed to be chaste and obedient and were expected to suppress their true feelings. This reflected the weight of emotional work that Roman society placed on its women as a seemingly natural extension of the traditional division of labor. None of this can be expected to have been beneficial for the individual's mental well-being, end quote. Though it is impossible to know how actual marriage relationships played out in the home, the ideal, transmitted through the husband's perspective, would be that a wife was subordinate to and supportive of her husband as, quote, 
Her identity became associated with that of her husband, even as it also remained strongly associated with her natal family. That's a quote by Mary Harlow. Assuming this is a first marriage for Eusta, there would most likely be a significant age difference between her and her husband, perhaps up to 15 years, with Eusta being in her late teens or early 20s. Harlow notes, quote, marriage at an early age might have enhanced the virtue of submission and sense of subordination a young girl might have felt towards her husband and increased his sense of superiority, dominance, and paternalism. If Eustace's petitions to her husband failed to change his mind concerning exposure, then she may experience several of the role occupancy stressors Avison and Perlin describe. Because she is required to accept her husband's decision to expose her daughter, she may feel that her role as a wife demands more of her than she wants to give. She may also feel a sense of failure of reciprocity in her relationship with her husband, as she has been a dutiful wife, yet her husband dismisses her desires. The extreme of role conflict comes to the fore in this scenario, as a woman is forced to live with the tension of her duty as a wife in a highly patriarchal family system and her desire as a mother to raise her daughter. Using Blair Wheaton's classification, these stressors could be considered traumas as they are serious and overwhelming, and ecological stressors as they were woven into the fabric of society for wives of the time. The second scenario for reading imagines a daughter as an adult woman with dependents of her own. This scenario is not connected to the previous scenario, but instead imagines a different context within which to understand the daughter's impairment and the stress she and her mother experience. In this scenario, I imagine a different, more complicated family structure for Eusta and her daughter, in which the daughter's stressors are foregrounded. For this scenario, Eusta's daughter is a widow with a child of her own under two years old, living at subsistence level as a non-elite in the urban center of Tyre or Sidon. I choose the two-year age mark to stress the child's dependence upon his or her mother's body for sustenance, since two years old seems to have been the average age of weaning a child, perhaps especially for lower-class families. The daughter's symptoms developed after the death of her husband. In this case, the daughter's symptomatology would affect a family in more complicated ways. On one hand, the daughter's symptomatology could be interfering with her ability to care for her child, such as the refusal to feed her child, a general disinterest in caring for the child, etc. On the other hand, the daughter could be, at this stage in life, caring for Eusta. Eusta could be in her 40s or older, and her adult daughter is her caretaker. Thus, the daughter could be the critical linchpin in caring for her mother in her old age and her own dependent child. With the daughter's husband deceased, the family unit could be seriously destabilized by the possession symptomatology of the daughter. If Eusta is too old or unable to work and the child too young, Eusta's daughter could be the primary financial and material provider for the family. Her inability to work or sporadic, even seasonal, employment could result in further food insecurity, homelessness, or the death of her child, already in a precarious position because of high child mortality rates. For this scenario, I assume a possession symptomatology that the medical writers of the ancient world would have diagnosed as mood disorders, namely melancholia or mania, which could potentially adversely affect the family dynamic. According to Serranus, quote, mania is an impairment of reason and can be the result of a range of causes including grief and anxiety. Admittedly, Serranus believes mania in women and children to be quite infrequent, but Ereteus of Cappadocia suggests that women can be subject to mania, but that their cases are more difficult to manage. According to Ereteus, one of the symptoms of mania can include, quote, madness attended with anger, and these sometimes rend their clothes and kill their keepers, end quote. Galen says that melancholia is mood and behavior symptomatic, 
and that all who have this disorder, quote, exhibit fear or despondency. They find fault with life and hate people, but not all want to die. For some, the fear of death is a principal concern during melancholy. Others, again, will appear to you quite bizarre because they dread death and desire to die at the same time, end quote. The Testament of Solomon contains examples of the belief that demons are responsible for these types of symptoms. A demon named Asmodeus claims to, quote, spread madness about women through the stars, end quote. The demon Katanikotail claims to, quote, unleash fights and feuds in the home, while Rex Anoster claims to unleash hysteria. Further, the symptoms of anger and violence cited by the medical writer sound similar to the symptoms describing the gathering and garrison demoniacs from Matthew 8, 28, 34, and Mark 5, 1 through 20, respectively. Assuming the daughter is a widow and primary provider in her home, I examine two distinct stressors caused by these new social positions in which she finds herself. First, there's the grief caused by the loss of a husband, and second, the anxiety of being a primary caregiver and provider for her child and her mother. That her grief is interwoven with social stress is not a reflection of egotism or selfishness. For the daughter to be grieved and anxious about the new social positions in which she finds herself, that is, widow and primary provider, is a reasonable expectation, especially with little social protection to serve as an ameliorating buffer against the material ramifications of such a loss. What matters for the construction of this scenario, then, is that his death brought grief, and therefore stress, to the now widow. Blair Wheaton categorizes the loss of a loved one as an acute trauma, in that the stress caused by the process of dying ends with the death of the person. However, the stress of learning to live a life without the loved one is a chronic stressor, according to Wheaton. Perhaps the daughter's bereavement went on too long, at least according to the opinions of her family and friends. Clark and Rose write, quote, Even within the culture into which many of us were born, insanity is not easily distinguished from episodes of disturbance resulting from stages of life, such as adolescence, separation, and dying. In general, every culture has limits of acceptable behavior in these situations, end quote. Seneca is concerned with the prolonged grief of a mother who has lost her son, saying, quote, Three whole years have now passed, and yet the first violence of your sorrow has in no way abated. Your grief is renewed and grows stronger every day. By lingering, it has established its right to stay and has now reached the point that it is ashamed to make an end, end quote. Assuming the daughter's grief seemed excessive in scale or duration, the medical doctors might have diagnosed the daughter with mania or melancholy. Eusta may have understood her behavior as evidence of possession. A secondary stressor for Eusta's daughter has to do with becoming the primary provider for the home. The Methian text says that Eusta came out from that region, that is, the district of Tyre and Sidon. Thus, I imagine that she and her daughter live in a rural village in the area surrounding these cities, and that her husband, while living, practiced a trade such as a blacksmith. With poverty being pervasive in urban centers of the empire, Eusta and her daughter are representative of the urban poor. Steve Friesen has persuasively argued that as many as 90% hovered around subsistence levels, even within the larger cities of the empire. Considering the significant ecological stressor of chronic food insecurity pervasive in the Roman agrarian society, the loss of a material provider would be significant. The stress of entering the workforce as a woman would also be significant, especially if she had no trade or special skills to offer. Susan Tregiari has demonstrated that women participated in a variety of economic activities and, quote, 
appear to be concentrated in service jobs, catering or prostitution, dealing particularly in foodstuffs, serving in shops, in certain crafts, particularly the production of clothes, fiddly jobs such as working in gold leaf or hairdressing, certain luxury trades such as perfumery, end quote. Many of these jobs, however, would require special skills, and some might require that the daughter be socially connected. Since the daughter has a young child who had not yet been weaned, she may be able to hire herself out as a wet nurse. Keith Bradley has demonstrated that many wet nurses came from lower economic classes, not just from enslaved classes. Sandra Joshel writes, quote, Lacking the money, skills, and connections to enter other trades, the poor woman simply used, or rather permitted, someone else to use her body. The Roman hierarchies of gender and class sanctioning such use, end quote. However, poverty could result in freeborn women turning to sex work for income. Thomas McGinn, using a comparative model, argues, quote, Modern studies of prostitution suggest that poverty, resulting from or combined with low wages, limited opportunities for work, disastrous events in the family economy, and a desire for relatively rapid and easy social mobility has played a decisive role in influencing women's choices to enter prostitution, end quote. The daughter's ability to find work would only be made more difficult by possession symptoms that made her despondent, angry, or violent. Avison and Perlin's list of role occupancy stressors give language to the types of stressors the daughter faced after the loss of her husband and with the subsequent responsibilities as primary provider. First, the transition from dependent in the household of her husband to primary provider constitutes a role restructuring. She is no longer a wife, but she is a widow who is now the primary caregiver for both her child and her aging mother. The unscheduled life change of the death of her husband has resulted in a new set of roles for which the daughter may not have been prepared materially or emotionally. The role restructuring could, as Perlin suggests, result in other stressors. The daughter may experience stress if she felt that her new roles were placing excessive demands upon her. She may also experience the stress of role captivity, as the role of widow is not one that she wanted. These stressors could all become chronic if the daughter has little or no recourse to ameliorating buffers. Eusta, on the other hand, faces stressors of her own. She too is a widow, but many women with adult children were. I imagine that Eusta is unable or at least minimally able to work. Eusta's role in the family is complex because she is the mater familias, yet she is also reliant on her daughter to care for her as she ages. Similarly to her daughter, she may be experiencing excessive demands since the death of her son-in-law. She may feel obligated to care for her grandchild while her daughter grieves, but she may also experience the stress of being unable to provide for her child and grandchild. With a small child and a poor family, breastfeeding would be a cost-effective way to provide for the child, but Eusta would be unable to do that for her grandchild. If the daughter's symptomatology is causing her to be emotionally and physically unavailable to her own child, Eusta may be feeling the added stress of food insecurity for the grandchild. Additionally, Eusta is at an age where she may need to be cared for by her daughter. The transition from caregiver to care receiver is a role restructuring that can be quite stressful. However, there is a sort of role conflict that Eusta may be experiencing since she may feel obligated to continue contributing some care for her daughter and grandchild while her daughter exhibits possession symptoms. The conflicting roles are that of a mother and grandmother and aging dependent reliant upon her child for care. This is only compounded by an anxiety that, if her daughter's symptoms persist or worsen, 
Eustace will have no one to care for her as she ages and that her grandchild will be at risk for all sorts of ills, such as extreme poverty or premature death. The daughter's impairment and symptomatology introduce a complex web of stressors into the family unit that risk dismantling the family infrastructure. With these two possible scenarios in mind as a context for characterizing Eustace and her daughter, and there are many more ways to imagine this family dynamic, let's now turn to the passage at hand. Eustace's desperate plea to Jesus, her persistence in spite of Jesus' refusal to engage, and her acceptance of the inferior status of dog may all reflect a woman who is desperate to save her child from abandonment and likely enslavement or death. Or it may reflect a woman who recognizes her daughter as the critical linchpin, ensuring the survival of not only herself, but also her grandchild. Or it may reflect an entirely different set of stressful circumstances not considered. Whatever the scenario, Eustace's position to Jesus is an act of amelioration for her stressful situation and that of her daughter. Yet, Eustace must face one further social stressor before she receives the help she so desperately desires. Jesus' refusal to give the woman a hearing. As Kwok Puilan notes, many scholars have interpreted this scene as part of a salvation history model and argue, quote, that the Gentile woman's story is included in the Gospels to provide legitimation for admitting Gentiles into the Christian community, end quote. However, Jesus has earlier granted the request of a Gentile, the centurion in 8, 5 through 13, and exorcised demons from two men in Gadara, presumed by many scholars to be Gentiles. Further, as Puilan reminds us, when the woman first approaches Jesus, she addresses him as, quote, son of David, to remind the reader of the genealogy at the beginning of the gospel, end quote, a genealogy that conspicuously includes a Canaanite woman. It does not seem that the Gentile question is the only concern of the author. Elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus has healed children, so it cannot be simply that Jesus does not find children, on the whole, unworthy of healing. What seems distinct about this passage is that a Gentile woman approaches Jesus. Several feminist scholars have highlighted the gendered dimensions of the encounter. Sharon Ringi writes, quote, We know, according to the customs of the first century Palestinian society, this woman should have been invisible. No Jewish man, especially one with a religious task or vocation, expected to be approached by a woman, Jew or Gentile, except perhaps by one of the many women reduced to prostitution to support themselves. End quote. Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, highlighting the atypicality of the scene, writes, quote, The woman not only enters the public domain, but she does so speaking loudly. End quote. France Taylor Gensch suggests, quote, the Canaanite success as a woman in the public arena is an indicator of a significant gender question in the story, end quote. Though the strict gender dichotomy of public male and private female space may be exaggerated, and probably is, that Eusta is a woman, especially one experiencing the significant family stressor of her daughter's possession, approaching several men publicly may have been perceived as unseemly. When Eusta approaches Jesus, she cries out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. As Warren Carter notes, Eusta uses language that recognizes Jesus' authority over demons and his links with Davidic rule. Mexican-American and post-colonial interpreters have read these affirmations as reflecting the master discourse, reflecting the colonizer's concerns and interests. Leticia Guardiola Saenz argues, Quote, Matthew frames the woman as a weak and humble person who comes to see Jesus, the one whom the story presents as having power, regardless of the historical and political situation of the people of Israel in this historical moment, end quote. 
Musa Dube contends that Yusta's requests are, quote, a good example of depicting the targeted foreign people as those who beseech and need subjugation, end quote. Kwak Puilan writes, quote, although given a voice, the woman's speech is clearly framed in Christocentric and androcentric discourse. In Matthew, she addresses Jesus as son of David to remind the reader of the genealogy at the beginning of the gospel. She also uses the title Lord to address Jesus, which actually reflects the Christological thinking in the early Christian community, end quote. These interpreters recognize the way that Eustace's speech reveals itself to be the construct of the author which has historically been used to perpetuate ideologies of domination and subjugation. However, James Scott's notion of public and private transcripts may provide an alternative reading that gives use to agency without minimizing the stress-inducing abusive language she encounters from Jesus. He is worth quoting at length here. The fact is that the public representations of claims by subordinate groups, even in situations of conflict, nearly always have a strategic or dialogic dimension that influences the form they take. The power of the dominant thus ordinarily elicits, in the public transcript, a continuous stream of performances of deference, respect, reverence, admiration, esteem, and even adoration that serve to further convince ruling elites that their claims are in fact validated by the social evidence they see before their very eyes. Most acts of power from below, even when they are protests, implicitly or explicitly, will largely observe the rules, even if their objective is to undermine them. Though Jesus, as a Galilean peasant, is by no means a member of the Roman ruling elite, within the narrative framework of the gospel, he is the commissioned, powerful agent of the God of Israel, and in this encounter with Eusta, he holds all the social power. Eusta must make her case to Jesus by validating his claims to power in order to work them to her advantage. Thus, Eusta comes to Jesus, using the language with which she has best chance of getting what she wants. She calls him by honorific titles that are foreign to her, using the language of the dominant to get his attention. Further, she imposes herself into his physical space when she kneels before him. While kneeling is a recognition of Jesus' authority, Guardiola Sainz observes, quote, with her own body, she blocks Jesus' way, putting herself as a boundary which Jesus should respect, end quote. Eusta has certainly inconvenienced Jesus, but she has done nothing to merit retaliation, such as resorting to physical or verbal violence. Jesus could simply walk around her, but her persistence and playing by the rules of the public transcript, as much as she pushes the boundaries of that transcript, result in Jesus' direct engagement with her for the first time. However, his engagement is stress-laden. He compares her to a dog that does not eat at the master's table. Toner argues, quote, in a society where social status was so highly valued, public humiliation probably significantly undermined an individual's mental health, end quote. Despite what scholars and pastors have argued to soften the blow, this epithet is a shaming insult and a potential source of stress for Eusta. Some have argued that her acceptance of the insult dog constitutes the faith that Jesus will subsequently praise. Daniel Gulata, for example, despairingly argues, quote, the Canaanite woman's sharp response is her acceptance that her ethnicity and status are comparable to that of a dog, end quote. Guardiola Sainz, however, resists interpretations in which Eusta accepts the slur. Quote, contrary to the opinion of most interpreters, I argue that the Canaanite woman does not identify herself as a dog. When she says, yes, Lord, she is agreeing with Jesus that it would be absurd to throw away the children's bread to the dogs. But at the same time, she reminds him that even if their dogs are eating from what their masters waste, which implies plenty, with more reason, she is entitled to the bread, 
end quote. Going a step further, I don't think that the Canaanite woman even wants a place at the table. Nothing in the text indicates that she follows or becomes a disciple of Jesus, nor do she or her daughter appear in the narrative again. Eusta has not come to join or displace the master's children. She has come to gain healing for her daughter, and those are two very different matters. The healer's resistance to the mother's plea introduces an ambiguity in the healing that is often overlooked by interpretations that seek to excuse Jesus' behavior or praise Eusta as a Gentile convert of sorts. A reading attuned to the social stressors that may have been present in the life of a woman like Eusta reveals just how devastating Jesus' dismissal of Eusta could be. Further, the healing of the daughter does not result in a life lived free of stress. In my first imagined scenario in which she risks exposure as an infant, the healing of the daughter may relieve a certain type of stress in the family's life, but not all of the stress. Perhaps she has been saved from a life of enslavement, yet she, like the majority of non-elite people living in the Roman Empire, knows a life of chronic food insecurity and poverty. In my second imagined scenario in which she is a widowed mother caring for her own child and aging mother, her daughter's healing does nothing to alleviate the stress of being the primary provider for her dependents. Her options for employment and capacity for social mobility remain just as limited as they were before they ever encountered Jesus. Well, grandmas, thanks for listening. It's always a little nerve-wracking to share my own personal arguments, so I hope you found it interesting. I do like to push the boundaries of what is acceptable, and I think it is incredibly useful to revisit these healing scenes because folks with disabilities in our societies are often blamed and shamed for their impairments, and the biblical text is often used as a way to make them feel guilty for existing in their own bodies. And my goal in pushing back on these healing stories is to note that healing is not a fantasy cure. As always, send comments or questions to notyourgrandmapodcast at gmail.com and I'll get back as soon as I can. Please take a sec and give me a nice five-star review. It really helps with podcast visibility. I appreciate your support so much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling people about me and take care, stay safe, wear a mask, love your neighbor. Until next time, amen and see you later.